you want to expedite things just a little bit this morning, turn in your Bibles to an Old Testament passage, Esther 4, and then uh, one in the New Testament, Colossians 4. Just kind of hold your place there, and we'll we'll get there momentarily. If you're a visitor with us today, um, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Lion Chaser. And uh, it's a seven-week series. This is the sixth week, so... Next week, we're saying goodbye to the Lion Chaser series. Now, for a preacher, you kind of make friends with these things. They're kind of like, you know, your, your buddy for the seven weeks, and I have to say goodbye to a good buddy. I've learned a lot in, in getting ready for these. Nobody learns more than the preacher, trust me. You, there's some, some kind of built-in accountability when you're going to speak to a couple of hundred people every Sunday. And uh, if your emails and your comments throughout the course of this series are any indication, you've learned a lot, and this series has been pretty important to you as well. We've talked about defying odds, facing fears, overcoming adversity, uh, embracing uncertainty, and taking risks. We talked about taking risks last week. Now, there's a real danger anytime a preacher preaches a sermon on taking risks. I really hope none of you emptied emptied your bank account last week and went and, you know, like bought some kind of crazy stock on a whim or something like that and said, I'm, preacher said, take a risk. I hope you didn't do that. Um, that's not, that's not, that wasn't the intended uh, response to the sermon, but, but um, certainly there is a place for being open to what God has for us, and sometimes he is calling us to take risks, sometimes, and sometimes when you take those risks, uh, you're going to do what we're going to talk about next week, which is look foolish. You're going to, there are going to be times in faith when you follow God that, that uh, you are going to look foolish. There's just no question. Uh, the question is, are you willing to do that, and are you willing to look foolish for the name of Christ? And um, that's a whole nother sermon, and we'll, we'll talk about all that. But today we're talking about seizing opportunities. Now, again, if you're a visitor, this whole thing, this whole sermon series, Lion Chaser, is built on a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Beniah. Now, here's what you need to know about Beniah. Beniah uh, ascended to become the second in command of the whole army of Israel, he, uh, at one point, was, was the, the head of King David's bodyguard detail. Um, pretty courageous, pretty kind of manly guy. This is, if you're a guy, this is the kind of guy you want to be, really. You, 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 you look up to a person like Benaiah. Uh, and I've been reading this passage, and those of you who've been coming to church here for a long time and you don't ever miss, you're thinking, he reads this every week. Why does he read this? I read it because our visitors need some context for the remarks today. So this is what the Old Testament says about this guy named Benaiah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Now I said, there's two places, Esther chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 4, and if you've got those, we'll get there in just a minute. But, but first I want <clears throat> to talk about this phenomenon that is Starbucks. How many of you are Starbucks fans? How many coffee people in the room this morning? How many of you cannot function in the morning without coffee? See, I have no idea what that's like. My dad said, you'll go to college, you'll drink coffee, it never happened. How many of you, how many of you partake of an occasional Starbucks now and then? I think that's just a wonder, look at that. See, see, I, I, it, the whole thing's lost on me, but I got to admit, until the Born to be Wild series, Harleys were kind of lost on me until that, and, and, and poor Kyle Nelson, he works his tail off to try and get me to drink some coffee, and it just, it's not happening. Anyway, did you know that Starbucks, you can actually buy a gift card 
from Starbucks. Well, you know that. But did you know that you can buy an international gift card for Starbucks that will work in, say, Australia? I mean, they're global. They're all over the place. Um, What you need to know is that there's a guy named Howard Schultz who bought Starbucks. It was a little, uh, just a little company at the time. He bought Starbucks in Seattle, Washington on August 15th, 1987. When we go to uh, Leadership Summit every August, uh, I take the elders and the staff to a thing called Leadership Summit. We, we heard a couple of years ago, and it's one of my favorite things. I love to go because I always learn so much and uh, get challenged. And one of the guys that was there a couple of years ago talked about BHAPs and BHAGs, B-H-A-P's and B-H-A-G's. A BHAP is a big, hairy, audacious problem. Okay, that's a BHAP. BHAG is what we want to have around here. We are into BHAGs around here. Big, hairy, audacious goals. Okay, we don't set goals that are like, oh yeah, we can do that. We set goals that, that we look at each other and say, God doesn't show up, this, this is not happening. And so, Howard Schultz had a BHAG. He had a big, hairy, audacious goal. You know what his goal was? He buys this company, there's a couple stores in Seattle. His goal was to migrate south to Portland, Oregon. Now, if I, my whole geography was messed up last service because I said he went north. It's hard to go north in the United States beyond Seattle, isn't it? But... He wanted to go to Portland, Oregon, which was south, and some kind person pointed that out to me. Thank you for letting me feel stupid. <clears throat> Where was I? <laughs> he buys this company August 15th, 1987, and he wants to take it to Portland. You know, he's like, he's thinking, if I can do that, man, I'll be hitting on all cylinders. Now, <laughs> I'd say he went a little beyond Portland. There are 11,000 stores globally. They are in 35 countries. There are 35 million, am I saying that right? Yeah, 35 million visits per week at a Starbucks somewhere. Now get this, because this blows my mind. Starbucks opens five stores a day, every day. 365 days a year, they open five stores a day. That is, that's, what's my favorite word? That is amazing. That is amazing. But here's the thing. When Howard Schultz had the opportunity to buy this company in 1987, he almost passed it by. He almost um, passed up the opportunity because he thought the opportunity was too big. To put it in his words, it was like a salmon swallowing the whale. It just, he, here's, here was his problem. He could not see clear uh, the idea of spending $4 million. That was a lot of money. Still is a lot of money. Um, that, you know, he, he just, it, it was a, that was a lot. And he, he wasn't sure that he wanted to lay out that kind of capital for uh, a company like that. It was, a, it was a risk. It was a big deal. He wrote a book called Pour Your Heart Into It. And this is what he writes in his book. This is my moment, I thought. If I don't seize the opportunity, if I don't step out of my comfort zone and risk it all, if I let too much time tick on, my moment will pass. I knew if I didn't take advantage of this opportunity, I would replay it in my mind my whole life, wondering what if. On June 26, 1992, less than five years after Howard Schultz purchased Starbucks, Starbucks stock went public. It was the second most traded stock on the NASDAQ that day, and by the closing bell, uh, its market capitalization stood at $273 million. 
That is not bad on a $4 million investment. Schultz saw an opportunity, and he seized it. In Colossians, there is this little verse, and it's one of those verses that you can read and you can just go right by it. Uh, you can read it and not really uh, get the implications. It, 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 you know, certain verses in Scripture, you can, there's, there's, they're weighted down with stuff, but you, you can read them and miss it. You can be in such a hurry to get to the end of the verse. I talk about that a lot. You know, we read the Bible like the goal is to get to the end of the verse. Stop and listen and pay attention to what you're reading and let those things soak in. And this is definitely one of those kind of verses because we can underestimate what this verse says. We can underappreciate what this verse says. But I'm sure of this, each one of us, if we would actually put this passage into practice, that, that if we really did make this a part of who we are and how we function each day, it's going to revolutionize our life. It's one of those little statements that's easy to read. It's one of those things that's really easy to say, but it's hard to do this on a regular basis. But it describes an approach, I think, to life that God wants us to have. The, the passage is Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, the second part, and this is what it says. Make the most of every opportunity. And you say, well, that didn't just rot my socks off. Make the most of every opportunity. It's actually pretty cool. In a few minutes, we're going to do a little, I'm going to tell you what some of these words mean, and, and it'll, I think it'll have a little more weight for you. It doesn't specify how many or how few. It doesn't talk about how big or how small. It, it, that's not uh, the, the, you know, the discussion here. It simply says, make the most of every opportunity. If we could really open our eyes and see our life the way God sees our life, if we, could, if we could open our eyes and really pay attention to the things and see them the way God sees uh, our lives and our opportunities, then we would see things way differently. We would see that there are opportunities coming to us all the time, opportunities to laugh, opportunities to grow, opportunities to learn, to give, to serve. We're surrounded by opportunities at every turn. But the question is, are we going to make the most of the opportunities that we have? That's really what we're talking about today. One of the problems we face in our, our society is the, the cultural definition of success. And because we, you know, everybody is a product of some culture. And because of that, there's always a definition of what success is for that culture. Um, it's the natural byproduct of being a part of a culture, really. In our culture, the tendency is to define success by either position or possession. Either by your resume, what you've done, what you've accomplished. You know, that's a, that's a big thing. You go to get a job, the first thing you gotta do is make sure your resume is, is stocked up with the right stuff. And you know, you wanna make sure if you're a football coach that it's not stocked full of stuff that didn't actually happen, which, there's, football coaches sometimes have a hard time discerning truth and what's not. But, you know, and, and so the reason they do that is because they know that their resume is being judged for success. And, you know, if you are going to say that you actually played football at Notre Dame, it's just me, but it might be a good idea if you actually did play football at Notre Dame. That'd be really helpful, you know. But your resume says what you've accomplished, and your success in large part is judged on your resume in this, in this culture and in this society. That's just the way it is. Or it's judged on the possessions that you have, on the things that you own, on what you, you've been able to accumulate. You know, the whole, the one who dies with the most toys wins. I think definitely that's a, that's a that our culture buys into that. If you've got a lot of stuff, 
good for you. You've been successful. If you w- drive by your neighbor's house and he's got a nice new car, you say, oh, Frank's <laughs> must be successful at work. We equate things with success in this culture. I think that's the cultural definition of success. But I, I want to take a look now at a biblical definition of success. I want to say that success is making the most of every opportunity. That's really what success is. Really, it all comes down to stewardship. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about giving today. I'm not talking about stewardship, although indirectly I am talking about stewardship. This, this message today really is about the stewardship of life, and it's about the stewardship of opportunity. But I want to, I want to go through this little three-part saying with you because I want, to, I want to define stewardship for you, and when you leave here today, I want you to be able to say this back to me, okay? So, so listen, I'm going to say it a couple of times, and then I'm going to ask you to say it with me, okay? So here, here are the three parts. Stewardship defined is doing the best you can, okay, doing the best you can with what you have where you are. Stewardship is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. And say that with me. Stewardship is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. That's stewardship defined, and that is really success defined. You know, you talk to parents, and you say, what... Uh, you, are your kids successful? Oh yeah, you know Johnny. He's he's a he's an attorney, big city. He's he's in the firm. He's, you know, they start reciting the resume. Oh, you know, uh, Angie. She just bought that house out in the Burbs, and it's beautiful and it's big. You ought to see their swimming pool. You know, what I mean, it's all about. A lot of times, parents want to define their kids' success by by their resume or by their their possessions. Um, that's not how I would define success as a parent. Uh, to me, if my kids grow up and love Jesus and, and want other people to love Jesus too, then I have been successful as a parent. My number one job outside of loving Jesus myself is to disciple my own kids. If I don't do that, I have failed as a parent. So, so the stewardship defined is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. Now, I get asked questions from time to time about uh, our church. And I love to talk about Cross Lane. I don't know if you've ever been around me whenever someone asks me about Cross Lane, but I mean, it's like I'll hurt you to be able to, to get, I can't get to you fast enough to talk about, about Cross Lane. I love this place. And I was at a function the other night, and this guy walked up to me. He's from Chicago. I have no idea who this guy is. He comes up and he says, hey, tell me about your church. I'm like, man, how do you, who are you? You know, I didn't even know who this guy was. He was very nice, and we, got, we talked, and actually at the end of the night, we prayed together. It was really, really cool. But, but he said, tell me about your church. Well, that's an open-ended question. I, don't, I mean, I think he knew I was a preacher, but he does not know how dangerous it is to ask a preacher that kind of question because I could just go on and on. I said, so I started telling him about our church. But what, and I didn't tell him this, but what I will tell people often, especially what I'll tell people who aren't used to going to church, that maybe you've got a friend and you're trying to get them talked into coming to our church just once. Just, you'll say, you know, just come try it. And one of the big things that you'll hear a lot of times, in fact, I heard this again this week. They said that they didn't want to hurt people. I said, what do they mean by that? Well, they're afraid the whole building will fall in if they walk into church. And my response is always the same. Tell them we've engineered that in, okay? We, it's, it's, there's extra stuff in the, in the joists and everything to make sure it doesn't cave in. But here's why, here's what I'll say to people who think that way. I'll say, you need to understand, our church, what makes our church special and what makes us a really cool place for you to come to is that our church is full of broken people. Isn't that true? I mean, is there, are there any of you sitting out there today who, who, would, who, would, 
who would not be able to say, I'm not broken. You know, isn't that true of all of us that we've all been through stuff and we say, you know, no, I've, I've been broken. I've, you know, either I've made a mess of my life at one point or I've messed up my kids or I've messed up a job or a, a relationship or a, a marriage. Or I mean, you know, that, that's all of us. There's nobody that comes to church that, that would be able to walk out and say, not me. I haven't messed up anything. No, we're all, we're all train wrecks. We really are. And, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go to church because that's just where all the, the, the hypocrites hang out. And we say to that, come on, we could use one more. You know what I mean? We're just full. We're, we're all hypocrites. I mean, listen, we, this is what Christians do. And people that aren't Christians don't understand this. And I, I wish I could, I wish, I wish I could go on national television and explain this to people who don't believe in Jesus because they, they misunderstand Christians. Christians take things that come very naturally to people and they say on the front end, we don't want to do these things. Even though we're inclined to do them, someone hits their, hammer with a, hits their finger with a hammer, what, what are you inclined to do? Say things you're not supposed to say. So Christians say, well, we don't, we don't want to do that. We think that's a sin. Even though if we hit ourselves with a, a hammer, we're going to be inclined to say things we ought not say. At every turn, Christ calls us against our human nature. And yet, so we declare on the front end, we're not gonna, we don't want to do these things, knowing full well that's what our inclination is. Then when we fail, all the people who aren't Christians say, see, hypocrite. Well, you know what I want to say to those people? At least we're trying. I mean, at least we, at least on the front end, at least we're, we're, we got a goal. At least we got a BHAG going. You know what I mean? At least we got this big old hairy audacious goal to not fall into what it just comes normal and natural for us. And yet, you know, people have trouble sometimes. But, but we're all broken. I have people come to talk to me all the time who, who will start to lay out for me what life is, has, you know, how their life has unfolded. And they'll, they'll explain to me that maybe, you know, they've made mistakes and it's ruined their marriage or it's ruined their, their job or, you know, they, their, their kids won't talk to them or whatever. And then, you know, they'll eventually start to set about the whole idea. I've seen those people, by the grace of God, put their life back together, patch it all back together, broken though they are, and press on to, co- to go on and live life. And, and it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I've seen people do that. And they've, you know, I would say that they're successful. I wouldn't say that they're financially successful, but emotionally, spiritually, absolutely they're successful. And they've put the past behind them and they've set about to live a constructive life. I don't care whether you're a coffee mogul or whether, you know, you just walked in here today and, and your marriage is a mess and, and you're trying to just make sense of it all. I don't care who you are. Um, success is doing the best you can with what you have where you are. The word, this is where it really gets cool, because this word opportunity we read up here in Colossians 4, make the most of every opportunity. That little Greek word, opportunity, in Greek, that word is kairos, and what kairos means is it means a moment in time. So you're isolating a moment in time. Now, this is where it really gets cool. The Latin phrase for the word opportunity is apportu. That harkens all the way back to the days before modern harbors when the sailors that would be out, in order for them to get their ship into a safe harbor, they had to wait for the flood tide to come. And when the flood tide came, that was apportu. That was the time that you took advantage, you took the opportunity to get your boat into the harbor. If you missed Aportu, you missed it. You didn't get to get into safe harbor. You got hung out to dry, so to speak, and it was a bad thing. 
You may be familiar, boats may not be your thing. And I told him in the first service, I'm about to quote Shakespeare. I can count on one finger how many times I've quoted Shakespeare. So you may, if you've got your cameras ready, you may want to take a picture of this because this doesn't happen very often. This is what Shakespeare says. He's talking, he's locked on to this idea of a portu, the Latin idea of a portu. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. You see, Shakespeare understood this idea of a portu. He understood opportunity. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So there's an idea here that, that as a Christ follower, we have opportunity. See, if you're a, if you're a Christian, what you have is, is almost, I would, I mean, scientifically speaking, I don't think you could say this, but definitely spiritually, you have a sixth sense. You have the Holy Spirit. And, and, there's, and, and the Holy Spirit is going to make you aware of things, and it's going to point things out to you. You're going to see opportunities. The question is, will you, will you make the most of what you have where you are? That's really the question. But here's the catch. You've heard the, uh, the uh, uh, aphorism uh, that opportunity knocks. Does it? Does opportunity knock? I, I don't think so. I mean, the truth is, opportunity in the context of 2 Samuel 23, which is the verse I read talking about Beniah, in the context of that passage of Scripture, opportunity does not knock. Opportunity really has a tendency to just beat the door down. Opportunity just kind of steps in whether you're ready for it or not. You know, it's, it's almost like you're in your bedroom getting dressed and opportunity just barges right in, you know, catches you, you know, unclothed sometimes. It's like, oh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready for the opportunity when it comes. You think about some of the opportunities you've had in life, some of the things that you've taken advantage of, and the chances are pretty good that when they happened at the time, you would have said, well, you know, the timing isn't the best on this. I mean, I don't know that, that I'm really ready for this. I mean, this giant Egyptian that Benaiah comes across, I doubt seriously that he, he knocked on Benaiah's door and said, hey, buddy, I just wanted to let you know we're going to rumble here in a few minutes, and, you know, if, like if you hadn't eaten today or if you need a nap or you need a drink of water or something, put your wrestling shoes on before we go. I just thought I'd, you know, knock and let you know that an opportunity's coming. I don't think that's how it happened. I think this Egyptian just kind of shows up in Benaiah's life, and it's like, it's go time, and now is the time. I've got to be ready. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. I'm figuring that he knocked the door down. I don't think that, that this Egyptian guy is knocking. Benaiah is out one day, and he crosses paths with a lion. Now, what I want you to see is that sometimes our biggest opportunities are disguised as big hairy, audacious problems. You know, you, if you're benign, you're out walking, you see this lion, to most of us, we'd say, oh, that, that's a problem. And it all depends on your perspective. You're going to see that. We've talked about this a little bit. Are you going to see that as a 500-pound 500, 500 problem, or are you going to see it as a 500-pound opportunity? See, we want our opportunities nicely packaged. We, we want our opportunities gently wrapped and handed to us, so that we can take our time and we can, you know, have a nice opportunity and think about it and, you know, look at it from all sides. And it's kind of like getting a present for Christmas. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're when, on Christmas morning when it's just your kids and just you guys, you don't care if they rip into the presents. But have you ever kind of 
had done a little pep talk with your kids where you say, don't look so anxious when we get to grandma's house, okay? Open your prayer. Don't just start throwing paper. You know, be nice about it. You know, we want to we do that with opportunity. Uh, my sister one time, in an effort to keep our whole family from just ripping through all the presents within five minutes, you know how that goes, it's like this flurry of activity, and it's like, okay, well now, now what do we do? So she, she wanted to try and make um, the, the unwrapping portion of Christmas, she wanted to try and make it last longer, so she suggested that we put socks on our hands. So, so, you know, my whole family, I mean, there's like 20 of us, and we're, we're all sitting there, okay, we're ready to open presents. You, try it. We did it one time. Never happened again. It's like, that, we're, not, we're not doing this. You know. Would have been great to have taken the opportunity to zip my pants after the baptism. Here's my question. How many of you knew that was, that was the case? Thank you, all my friends in the room. Golly, where in the world was I? <laughs> Opening presents with my hands. <sighs> That's what we want. That's what we, we want. We want all our opportunities to be just, you know, nice and neat and cut and dry so we can, we can analyze it. We can say, okay, th- this is what's going to happen, and, and I know how it's all going to unfold, and it'll just, be, it'll just be great. But that's not really how it happens. I think that, you know, Opportunities present themselves at the most inopportune times. We meet people at, at what God would say is the right time in the right place. And we have opportunities presented to us at the right time, the right place. But, but to us, so often, it doesn't look that way. To us, it looks like the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong person, the wrong time. It's like, I don't want to have this meeting now. I'm not ready for this meeting now. And yet God is saying, no, I've, I'm ordaining this. I'm, I'm putting this in front of you. It's, it's, this is your time. This is for you. In Esther chapter 4, if you've got that handy, turn to that, because there's a, there's a, this is a cool story. Really, it's a very neat story. The story of Esther is very, very neat. In the 5th century B.C., King Xerxes has ordered the genocide of the Jews. And in an amazing set of circumstances, God uses a beauty pageant to strategically position a Jewish uh, orphan girl named Esther, as the queen of Persia. And the catch was nobody knew she was Jewish, okay? And that's pretty significant when the person you're married to has issued a decree that all the Jewish people are not supposed to exist anymore, and you're one of them. So, you know, on one level, it seems like Esther's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Your husband has basically ordered the execution of everybody like you, and no one knows that you belong to that group. That's a big problem. But Esther has a wise uncle. Don't we all have a wise uncle? Is your wise uncle named Mordecai? Esther's wise uncle was named Mordecai. And and he's trying to help Esther get God's perspective on things, and that's what we read in Esther chapter 4. Listen to what Mordecai says to Esther, understanding that she's a Jewish girl. uh, There's a movement afoot to put all the Jews to, to death, and so she's married to the guy that has power over this whole thing. Now listen to what Uncle Mordecai says. Do not think that because you are in the king's house alone, you, that, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In other words, he's saying if it doesn't come through you, it's going to come from someplace else. So why, why shouldn't it be you? Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Now pay attention to what Esther's going to do. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, according to Persian law, no one could approach the king unless they were summoned. Not even his wife. And this was by penalty of death. You, You did not approach the king. The only way you got to approach the king was if you were in his presence and he raised his scepter, then that was a signal that you could approach the king. Um, if you read the first chapter, you're going to read about someone uh, who was, one, was Xerxes' wife before. And I had someone come out of the first service and say, because I said that she was killed. And they came out and said, I don't know that it, we actually know that she was killed. All I can tell you is she, she did not come when she was summoned. And, you know, it's pretty widely held that, you know, we're not, I don't think we're actually told that she was killed, but it's pretty widely held that she didn't make it, you know, when she said, no, I'm not coming. Uh, the Bible says he, he did away with her, but we don't really know what that means. Um, so in this case, Esther is thinking about going to King Xerxes. And he has not lifted his scepter. He has not, in other words, he has not said, it's okay for you to come. And she's thinking, I'm just going to go and talk to him. And she says, so, so you understand when she says, if I die, I die. By the way, general consensus on King Xerxes is that he was impulsive and unpredictable. You think? Listen, to, listen this is some of the antics of King Xerxes, okay? He ordered this bridge to be built. And the guys are set about, they're trying to build the bridge. And as they, as they build the bridge, a storm comes up, and they're like halfway through the bridge, and the storm comes up and wipes out the bridge. So King Xerxes orders that the body of water responsible for the damage receive 300 lashes. <laughs> he then ordered that all the bridge builders have their heads cut off, which really makes you ask, how, how are you going to get a bridge now? Because you just killed any opportunity to have a bridge built. And, and by the way, how many of you want to sign up to be a bridge builder for the king after that happens? So this is the kind of guy that Esther's about to deal with, and she's thinking about approaching. And so she says, you know, if I perish, I perish. But I'm, I'm going to do this. So there's an opportunity, but what does she do before her opportunity? She fasts and she prays. Now, it's my hope uh, that we preach on this uh, sometime in 07. From time to time, somebody will come to me and... Uh, They'll, they'll have a decision that they want to make, and they'll, they'll want my wisdom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay, I'll sit down with you and talk about it, because uh, I'm a genius, you know. I'm flat-out brilliant, so yeah, come ask me. But um, they'll come and they'll say, Brett, what do you think? You know, I really need to hear from God, and I'll say, well, that's a good place to start. Hearing from God is way better than hearing from Brett, okay? But I'll, I'll pray with you, and I'll sit with you and help you try and figure that kind of stuff out. But, you know, a really good place to start Take a page out of the book of Esther and fast and pray. Get alone with God for a little bit. And and here's the thing. See, we think that praying is all about what we say to God. Can I just 
help you understand that prayer is not nearly so much about what you're saying to God as what you're hearing God say to you. You say, well, God doesn't talk to me. No, because you won't shut up long enough for God to say something to you. You know, get, get alone. You might say something like, hey, God, I'm here. I'm ready to hear from you. And then hush and just listen. You know, have your Bible open and read a little bit. You would be amazed what God could say to you if you would just listen. If you started to look at prayer as, as, a, as a, you know, something that you, you, you're listening more than you're talking. And like I said, I'm hoping to preach some point in 07 on the whole idea of fasting and praying, and I hope to lead us in a, a, little, a brief time of, of fasting sometime before the year's out. We're going to have opportunity to do that. You see, you, you need to fast and pray sometimes so that God can lead you to a place where you know what he wants you to do. She sets a great example for us. A prayer has a way of turning problems into opportunities. I believe that. I believe that, that prayer, as you pray about things, it turns problems into opportunities. Long story short here, there, there was no genocide of the Jews, and the guy that was really behind the instigation of the whole concept of let's exterminate all the Jews in King Xerxes' uh, administration was this guy named Haman. Uh, Haman ends up being killed on the gallows that he himself built. His estate goes to Esther, and the signet ring that he wore went to Uncle Mordecai. And so God turns this whole thing around, uh, all because this one woman fasts and prays, and she goes to the king, and, and you know, he sees clear to, to call off the order, so to speak. And go back to Colossians 4 for just a minute. We read that passage, make the most of every opportunity. And how do we do that? I think that the answer to how we do that, how do we make the most of every opportunity, I think it's found in verse 2 of Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. If you want to make the most of every opportunity, then you've got to devote yourself to prayer. You've got to be watchful. The idea of the watchman, this idea of this be watchful, that word, goes back to the Old Testament when there was a watchman on the wall in a city. That's really what this is kind of drawing you back to. There's a word picture there. And the, the watchman on the wall in the city of any Old Testament city, he would sit up on that wall and he would watch and scan the horizon. He was looking for good things and he was looking for bad things. He was looking for anything that could affect either adversely or positively uh, the, the well-being of the, the city. And if he saw armies coming, he was going to be one of the first ones to see it. If he saw potential food sources on the way, he was going to be one of the first ones to see it. The watchman saw it before anybody else because he was, he was vigilant and he was up there and he was looking and he saw things farther. He saw things first. Their job was to keep an eye out for the benefit of the city. I would suggest that people who pray are watchmen. That people who pray are people who see. They see things farther they see things first, and they see things that other people don't see. You, you talk to someone who has great discernment, and I pretty much can tell you, you're going to be talking to somebody who prays a lot because they are a watchman, because that's what this passage is talking about. You see, there's something about living life in prayer mode. It enhances this sixth sense that God has given us in the Holy Spirit. Um, people in prayer mode see opportunities that other people don't see. People who aren't in prayer mode 
are opportunity blind. They, they just can't see things the way other people who, who are praying can see things. You can live your life one of two ways. You can live your life in survival mode, or you can live your life in prayer mode. Survival mode simply looks at circumstances and responds and reacts to the circumstances. And pretty much the attitude and the philosophy is, I'm just trying to get to another day. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to see my, clear, my way clear to another day. That's really all I'm trying to do, Brett. I, opportunity, care about that. I just, please help me to survive. You can live your life that way if you want to. But prayer mode puts our antenna up. Prayer mode makes us proactive, I think. The, the Aramaic word for prayer means to set a trap. It's a very, it's a real um, pictorial kind of word, to set a trap. Prayer helps us catch the opportunities that cross our path. If Benaiah had been in survival mode when he crossed paths with the lion, he probably would have run away. If he's in survival mode, he's thinking to himself, I'm not tangling with that thing. I don't want any part of that thing. I'm just going to turn and run away because I've got to survive. Because when you're in survival mode, that's what you, that's what you think. That's what you're, you're going through. You've got to survive. We talked about this last week. I, I'm telling you, as a leader, the, the best piece of advice that was ever given to me as a leader was, I do not have to survive. That was so liberating for me. And if you can get yourself to the place where that's not where you think all the time and you don't have to survive, it'll be no problem for you to take advantage of opportunities. But when you're in prayer mode, your perspective has changed and you see things in a different way. David was an amazing prayer warrior. I mean, you read the Psalms, you can just see that. Do you think... Uh, that if you were the bodyguard of David, that you would have ever heard David praying? I imagine so. I mean, when David's in his prayer closet, who do you think is outside the prayer closet guarding the prayer closet of the king to make sure that he doesn't get hurt? It's probably going to be the bodyguard of the king. Chances are good. That was Benaiah. I, I believe that it's highly possible that Benaiah benefited from hearing David pray. I think it isn't a stretch that Benaiah... Uh, in hearing David pray, you know, learned how to pray too. I want to look at a verse of scripture here this morning that, uh, that, that kind of shows us David's approach to prayer. And I think that this approach affected everybody around David. And what you're going to see, it's in Psalm chapter 5, verse 3. You don't need to look it up. We'll put it on the wall for you. Um, but this, is, this reveals the way David started every day of his life. Now, I don't know how you start every day of your life. Uh, I think coffee probably <laughs> factors into that for many of you. Hopefully you shower or, you know, at some point in the day you find time to do that. We have routines and rhythms, don't we, that we go through. Look at David's routine, Psalm chapter 5. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. Seems like David has an appointment with God every day. He's, he's got this standing appointment with God every day. He lays out his requests, and then he says, I wait for God to respond. I think this is critical. I think God wants to teach us something here. You, know, you want to know one of the evidences of a prayerless life? You show me a person who doesn't pray a lot, and I'll show you a person who's not expecting anything to happen. I'll, I'll show you, you show me a person who's not praying, and I'll show you a person who does not expect God to do anything. People say, you know, I don't ever see God do anything. Well, do you ever pray? Yeah, and I know that we've talked about prayer here, and, and you've been taught since you were little that prayer is not just about asking God for things, but there is, it's okay 
for you to ask God for things. It's okay. It's okay for you to go and say, Lord, you know, I know that you've got a plan here, and I know that, that you, you're working on this thing too, but can I just tell you what I'd love to see happen? Can I tell you what would really be cool if you figure out a way to do this? You know, lay your stuff out there, and then expect God to come and do what is best for you. But if you're not praying, you're not expecting God to do anything. David would put his request out there, and then he would wait in expectation. You know what this is all about. This is about the reticular activating system. Jan Eglin, who is our resident psychologist, left the first service and said, no, Brett, it's about the ascending reticular activating system. I said, thank you very much for that, Dr. Eglin. The the reticular activating system works kind of like this. He said it's kind of like a switchboard in your brain because here's what's going on with your brain. At the base of your your, uh, spine, at the base of your brain, there's a bundle of nerves called the reticular activating system, ascending, and then there's also a descending. See, that was free. That didn't cost you anything this morning. Absolutely free. So your brain is constantly being bombarded with information and and we we talked about this in the indescribable series you know pressures on your skin and what you're hearing and what you see and what's been said to you and how you feel and you know am I sick am I healthy am I hungry am I thirsty all that kind of stuff is constantly being thrown at your brain there's so many messages coming at your brain at one time that there's no way that it can handle all of it so the reticular activating system kind of acts like radar And it determines what things make it as a blip on your radar screen. That's what the reticular activating system does. And so it works like this. If you've ever been thinking about buying a car, and there's a particular car that you're thinking about buying, you ever notice that when you're looking at those kind of cars that you begin to see them everywhere? That's your reticular activating system. See, you thought you were going to come here and learn about God and Jesus, and I'm telling you about how your brain works. That's your reticular activating system. What happens is your brain creates a category of thinking and it it makes space for you to think about that thing. You were thinking about buying a car? Oh my, there's one. Maybe you're thinking about buying a Cadillac. Okay, there's a yellow Cadillac. There's a red Cadillac. Don't like the yellow one. I don't like the top on that blue one over there. Don't like the wheels. Ooh, that's pretty. Don't want that one. That's too old. That's your reticular activating system at work. Your brain has created a category for thinking. And you say, well, what in the world does that have to do with Psalm chapter 5, verse 3, where David prays and then waits in expectation? When we pray for something or someone, it creates a category in our reticular activating system, and we become sensitive to it. That's why when you pray for somebody, maybe you know somebody that's not a Christian, and you start praying for them, you say, Lord, you know, send somebody into their life to be able to have an influence, send somebody in their life to to give them an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, you know, help them to to know more about who you are. As you pray prayers like that, guess who's going to have the most opportunities to have some input in that person's life? You are, because you're creating a category of thinking in your mind for it. It is the way God has wired you to be, and it is why prayer is so important. It's why when you pray for something or someone, you start to notice more about them. That's why, you know, when it, whenever husbands and wives are not getting along and they're kind of fighting with each other, one of the things I say is you need to pray for them. You need to be praying for them. It's hard to fight with somebody when you're praying with them, praying for them. You know, create a category. That's one of the reasons that Colossians 4 is so important. Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful. Why? Because we create the right cognitive responses in our own mind 
to our circumstances. So much of spiritual maturity comes back to seeing and seizing God-ordained opportunities. And if we aren't living our lives in prayer mode, then uh, the problem isn't, you know, the problem's not that we're we're not praying or that the conversation has ceased. The problem in the long run is that we are going to miss so many opportunities that we will not be good stewards of the opportunities that are presented to us. That's really the danger. And God's saying, look, I'm laying this stuff out for you. If you would just pray and open your eyes and see, I'm putting it there for you. But you've got to act on some of this stuff. You've got to be ready. You know, but instead, oftentimes, we're, we're not praying, and we're just kind of waiting for it to be gift-wrapped for us. At the end of the day, we're called to pray. Prayer is seeing and seizing opportunities. Prayer is the key to turning problems into opportunities. It is the way God has called us to live our life. Now, the greatest opportunity that you will ever have is to spend an eternity with Christ in heaven. Here's what I I heard the preachers talking about this. This is really cool the way he put this. He said, you know, basically the story of Jesus is this. He came to our place. That's what Christmas is all about. You know, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to our place. On the cross, he took our place. And then after he rose from the dead, he invites us back to his place. Isn't that cool? He, he came to our place, he took our place, and then he invites us back to his place. And everyone who hears me this morning has the opportunity to spend an eternity with God. But, but see, you need reservations for that. You, you don't just show up and say, hey, I'm here. You've got to have reservations. You've got to make a deal. You say, well, okay, now, now finally a preacher who will be honest with me. There is a deal that has to be struck. You're exactly right. I'm about to tell you what it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, listen to this. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's almost like God is saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. And here's the deal this morning. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you're, if you're not a Christ follower, this is the deal. Now tell me how you say no to this. God wants to take everything that you've ever done wrong that he would call sin, he wants to take that, and he wants to take it out of your account, and he wants to put it in the account of Christ. And in return, he wants to take all the righteousness that is in Christ and transfer that to your account. That's the deal. And it just blows my mind that I can explain that to adults and then go, no, I don't want to do that. Huh? Why would you not do that? Well, I'll just, uh, you know, not today. You think the deal's going to get better tomorrow? I mean, that's, that's the best deal you're ever going to get, that you can transfer all your bad stuff and get rid of it. And you can make a swap with your heavenly Father to where you get the righteousness of Christ. Are you kidding me? How would you pass that up? The question is, will you seize the opportunity? Will you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross and see that he did it for you? Spiritual maturity is about seeing and seizing God-ordained opportunities, and they don't get any bigger than this. Think about giving your life to Christ. I'm not going to beat your door down. I'm not going to do that to you. But I don't honestly know what you're waiting for. And if you want to do that this morning, you can come as we stand and sing in just a moment. Um, you need to give your life to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this whole idea of being a Christ follower, it's, 
people who aren't Christians, they don't, we're a little misunderstood. Uh, sometimes we bring that on ourselves. Uh, Father, in our zeal to tell somebody about Jesus, we, we just do some of the stupidest things. But Lord, I pray that we'd be able to just make it as simple as it really is, and it is that, that you died for us so that you could take every bad thing that we ever did and remove it from us as far as the east is from the west, and we could live our life as a forgiven person. That, that we do not go through life and look over our shoulder waiting on you to come crashing down on us and, and get us. Lord, help us to understand that if you wanted to get us, you'd have already gotten us. But it's your patience that leads us to repentance. So this morning, Father, I mean, spiritually speaking, we're probably all over the map. But I pray that we find common ground at the cross. And I pray that we know that it is at that place that we are going to find forgiveness, freedom, joy, and peace. Lord, some of us are running. I pray that you would just help us to just stop long enough to see that you don't want to hurt us, you want to help us. That you want to forgive us, make us clean. Lord, my life lived in you as a Christian. It's the hardest thing I've ever tried to do in my life. But it is absolutely filled with more joy and more fulfillment than any other way I can imagine living life. And I pray, Father, that you could help other people to find that as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.